Good morning. There's a couple of people I want to introduce this morning that are here. One by invite and one by invite, invitation of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of nice. Where are you? Elizabeth Crook. Can you stand up? This is Elizabeth Crooks, and she is over Embassy of Hope, which is a ministry that ministers to um, gals who are high risk in um, sex trafficking and prostitution and problems like that. And she's uh, local, and uh, if you have interest to connect with her, she is a ministry that we endorse and love and approve wholeheartedly what she's doing. Okay? Thank you for coming, Elizabeth. And then we have Ellen Hewitt. Would you please stand, Ellen? Oh, she is. Six years ago, Ellen ministered to, well, I guess seven years ago, she ministered to Randy and I in a very profound way. And then six years ago, we invited her to come and minister to our board members and any other key leaders at the time. And she did just wonderful work and has trained us in marvelous ways. And so I invited her back, and she is uh, here for about 10 days ministering um, deliverance to people here in the church. And she is a wonderful, godly woman, and we are so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. I'm just so excited. It's so appropriate that we're fasting and that we're focusing on God more because he wants to set us free, make us well, and more whole. So it's just, it's all coming together. So I'm really excited about what she's got to offer. Okay, so I'm going to start with the story. You'll be able to relate to this one. Carla was born and raised in Houston, Texas. She was, anybody here from Houston? Nobody wants to admit, yeah, sort of. Yeah. Sugarland, that's close. Okay. She was the youngest of three sisters. When she was eight years old, her sisters introduced her to smoking. When she was ten... Um, her parents were going through divorce proceedings, and that's when she found out she was the result of an extramarital affair. When Carla was 12, she got addicted to heroin and turned to prostitution in order to provide for her addiction. By 14, she continued to do drugs, and she dropped out of school. She got connected with some, the wrong crowd, and she spent a weekend, one weekend with her boyfriend doing drugs, and they decided to go break into a, a man that she hated a lot just to steal some parts from his motorcycle. But unfortunately, the boyfriend and the boyfriend's girlfriend were in the apartment at the time of the break-in. So Carla and her boyfriend ended up brutally killing both Dean and Dean's girlfriend. Carla used a pickaxe and her boyfriend used a hammer. So Carla Faye Tucker was put in the... Um, Arrested in 1983, she was in prison, and while she was there, she stole a Bible from the prison ministry that had gone through there. And she took it to her cell, and she read it. She wasn't really understanding what she was reading, but before she knew it, this is what she said. I didn't know what I was reading, but before I knew it, I was just, I was in the middle of my floor, of my, on my knees, and I was just asking God to forgive me. Now, at that time, the death penalty was rarely um, sought out for female murderers. But uh, Carla Tucker was sentenced to death in 1984. But it took 14 years in death row before she finally was executed on February 2nd of 1998. 
Now, she was asked before she was executed if she had any final words, and this is what she said. Yes, sir, I would like to say to all of you, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I'm so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. I love all of you very much. I'm going to be face-to-face with Jesus now. Warden Baggett, thank all of you so much. You have been so good to me. I love all of you very much. I will see you all when you get there. I will wait for you. Now, could something have been done to have checked her rage? Was there something that could have been done to keep her from brutally murdering two people? Now, three weeks ago, we started a series called The Good and Beautiful Life. And in the text that we're going to look at today, Jesus speaks about the struggle that we have with anger and how it has the power to lead us down the path of murder, a ruined life, if unchecked. And um, Randy has done a great job of establishing and setting up the stage for this teaching series for the good and beautiful life and the life that Jesus invites us to experience. And a lot of you have actually asked me, hey, I want to hear the sermon. Can I hear the sermons again? And they are online on our webpage if you would like to listen to those again because they were excellent. But to review just a little bit, on the first week, Randy talked about the ruined life. And he described it as a life where we are the center of the world. We grow expecting and wanting the world to be the way we want it, right? Life isn't really about God being the center. It's about me being the center and what I want. Even as Christians, sometimes we dethrone God from certain areas of our life because we want to run that area of our life the way we want it. You know, when I pray, I expect God to answer. And any other answer but yes will not do. When I pray, I want what I pray for. And if, God, you don't do that, then I guess prayer just doesn't work. As if prayer and God were a vending machine. If we're married, we might think, now that I'm married, I expect to be happy. And to get out of uh, my marriage, I really want to make sure that I do my part, of course. And so I'm willing to read some books about marriage and figure out what I need to do in order to get what I want. But if my husband doesn't get what I want, then I'm going to pout. I'm going to withhold intimacy. And if that doesn't work, well, then I'm just going to conclude that marriage isn't for me. Living our life with us being the center of the life instead of God is guaranteed to lead us to a life of ruin. Now, Dallas Willer, who's a philosopher, a writer, and a current teacher at the University of Southern California, he said this, One of the best things God can do for us is to deliver us from living for ourselves. Can we just all say that together? One of the best things God can do for us is to deliver us from living for ourselves. That is profound. And Jesus is inviting us to consider who are we living for? Are we living for God or are we living for ourselves? So Jesus invites us to die to a self-centered life and into a life where we could experience a restored life. Luke 9.24 says, Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, but whoever insists on keeping his life will lose it. So then in a couple weeks later, then or a couple weeks ago then, Randy then established a second point. And what he did was he described several key Christian words for us. And one of those words was the word repent. 
The word repentance and repentance was never meant to be heard as a ju- judgmental indictment. You gross, evil sinner. Stop that or you're going to go to hell. That's not what it meant. Jesus did not come to put us on trial, but to put himself on trial. So we learned that when Jesus cried out, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, it would sound something more like this. Change your mind. Think differently. Go a different course in the way you've been going, because I'm here. And the life that you've wanted, the restored life, is now available because I'm here. Now, the last main point that Randy made uh, last week was Jesus not only invites us to step from the ruined life into um, restored life, he now offers the power to live it, the empowered life. Now, many of you in this room aren't going to know what this is. But in the last century, that was the sign for a driver to tell the driver next to them, hey, pull over, i got to tell you something. Right? But in this age, very few of us have hand cranks for the car. Okay? Some of us may not have ever seen one. Right? Okay, so we can do it like this. Or we could have a button, right? A little button. How many of you have automatic windows in your car? (laughs) All right. So we still have to push the button. We still have to initiate the activity. We still need to do it. Right? But when we do it, there is this major power source that comes through, which is the Holy Spirit. And he gets to have a lot of fun when we just push the button. When we encounter God and live in the kingdom, what once was impossible for us is now possible. When Jesus breaks into a person's life like he did in so with Carla Tucker, something happens. Now, Can you say, since being a follower of Christ, I can really tell something has changed. I'm not the way I used to be. You know, because when the Holy Spirit comes, with his coming, he often takes areas of our lives where we've been in trouble. Now, there's still areas where there's still trouble. But many times people will tell me, I just stopped drinking. I stopped smoking just like that overnight. And a lot of times they'll expect, well, why didn't all the other stuff go away? You know what I mean? I thought, you know, this changed life, dead life. Well, you know, God comes and he takes that portion initially. But you can tell there's something different. No longer Christianity is about going to church. It isn't about rules and regulations. And we don't relate to one another anymore in rules and regulations. It's not about I'm just trying not to get in trouble with God. Because we've repented, changed our minds. We've rethought about the kingdom We're now going to relate totally different to God, to other people, and about ourselves. It's more than just relating to others with rules and regulations. It's about relating in a manner that is only possible to those who yield to the available power of God. Now, for the rest of our series, Jesus is going to come. He's going to talk about this beautiful, good life. He's going to present it. And each time that we present, each time one of the speakers comes to present, I want you to see the word invitation. It's an invitation to this kind of life. It's not rules and regulations. It's an invitation. And Jesus is going to invite us to this life, and he's going to describe it. He's going to say, you know, if I were king of the universe, this is the way things would be done. This beautiful and good life, this is what it would look like. And this is the way you would respond 
during your hardships and your difficulties in life. Because I want to bless you. I want you to experience a good and beautiful life. So let's pray. Thank you, Father. Holy Spirit, thank you that you want to teach this morning. You want to call this to repentance to change our minds. And you are inviting us this morning, Lord, to see something that maybe we've not seen in the past for which we can surrender to. And so, Holy Spirit, I, I know that you are the power source. I can push the button. We could push that button. But you are the power source that's going to come and fill this time and to change our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, come. Amen. Okay, we're going to read um, uh, the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Matthew 5. Did something happen with PowerPoint? Oh, there. Okay. So let's read that together. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of Gehenna. Now, something I just want you to look here, because it's all up here right now. You see, uh, subject to judgment, you're going to see the Sanhedrin, and you're going to see Gehenna. Okay, and each of those are higher judgments. Okay, so the judgment, subject to judgment, was the judicial um, local magistrate people, courts. Sanhedrin was like higher was another word for hell. So you're going to see Jesus kind of like bumping it up each time. He's like, let's bump this thing up, guys, okay, for a purpose, because he's going to want to invite those whose ears are clogged. He wants to unclog them so they can see and go, what? New teaching is this, and then they're going to see the invitation. Because Jesus loved Pharisees, he loves us. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This verse is really two Old Testament verses brought together. The first one, and the Pharisees were the one that brought this together. You shall not mur- murder is the sixth chapter of the Tenth Commandment from Exodus 20. And then anyone who murders will be subject to judgment comes from Numbers 35. When we put those two statements together, what possible criticism is Jesus going to level against the Pharisees for doing this? We're going to pay, see what this is. First of all, when you join these two statements together, the first thing the Pharisees were doing, they were reducing the intent of the sixth commandment. They were fooling themselves. They wanted to say, yeah, we've been keeping and fulfilling the sixth commandment. I've, we've never murdered anyone, anyone. And so they said God is only forbidding actual murder. That's how they were, felt that they were righteous. God's only forbidding actual murder. Secondly, the Pharisees, when they put these two statements together, were reducing and confining the judgment to their local court system, totally ignoring that God might have an issue here, that God might want to divvy out some judgment or justice here. And so Jesus has to make a big point about this because there's implications when we have that kind of mindset and live our world that way. So the, judgment, the subject of judgment points to the Jewish judicial court system. And basically, the verse could be read like this. You must not murder because if you do and you get caught, 
you will be in danger of being punished by an earthly judge. That's what it sounded like to them, completely ignoring God's feelings about it. The Pharisees did not need rescuing. They, didn't, they believed they were good enough on their own. They did not need a divine Savior to cover for their sins. Jesus, sacrifice, not necessary. I'm good enough. And even if I do get caught, well then, I've already paid for it through the Jewish court system. So Jesus intelligently exposes their need for a Savior by showing the severity of the sin of anger. By stating that anyone who's angry, you guys ought to open up your courts for the judicial systems that you have for that one. Notice how Jesus deliberately, he uses their terminology, and instead of using the word anger, I mean murder, he puts in the word anger. They were shocked. They couldn't believe he would put a different word in the blank. And they were pegged. Some of them were pegged, like, whoa, I've done that. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So you see, the Pharisees totally lacked any checks or balances on how to handle and deal with anger. To them, that was fine. But God knows how we tick, and he knew how they ticked. And so he shows us the progression that happens with anger and where it leads us to. Now, Jesus is saying more, there's more to this than what you guys have heard. God's intention was never just don't murder each other. But it was, uh, don't think that just because you have not murdered anyone, that you've not broken the sixth commandment. Now, one of the things that really tripped me up, and I've shared this before, that one of the reasons why I had such a hard time becoming a Christian was because I really didn't think I was that bad of a person. By age 18, I hadn't killed anybody. I hadn't gotten drunk. I hadn't slept with anybody. So I really didn't need a savior. I'm doing pretty good on my own. Sounds like a Pharisee to me. But Jesus explains that the sixth commandment was not simply prohibiting the unlawful shedding of blood. The sixth commandment and all of the commandments were lovingly designed by God to thoroughly protect people. He wanted to protect us from the deadly consequences that are out there in the world. And he wanted to protect us from living the world the, the, the way I want to, right? I want what I want when I want it, and this is the way the world should be. So isn't it true that we can destroy people in other ways than murder? We can destroy a person's reputation or their ministry by slander. We can wound a child's spirit by sarcasm and criticism. We can kill affection between friends with that demeaning, contemptuous look. So the sixth commandment against murder, according to Jesus, wasn't designed just to protect people's bodies, but to protect their identity, their humanity, that they were made in the image of God and should be loved. Jesus is sounding a warning, a warning that the parents and the friends and the relatives of Carla Tucker did not sound. Way before she had the axe and used the hammer, there was something that could have been done that should have been alarmed. 
So now we need to understand that Jesus is saying about anger and what he's not saying about anger because a lot of times these verses in this passage have been twisted to cause a lot of psychological harm. You know, in this century and last century, many times Christians will go out of their way like an emotional pretzel, if you can imagine, trying never to get angry. So instead we practice denial. I'm not angry. I'm everything's fine. I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated and disappointed. I'm not angry, this is righteous indignation. Okay, so maybe it doesn't look like that. Instead of showing anger, we're going to withdraw from relationships. So it sounds like this. I'll just walk away and let it go. Just act like nothing happened. No big deal, I'll just get over it. Denial. Both of those are smoke screens to the reality that there's hurt and there's anger underneath those actions and those words. Now, I hear people tell me all the time, I don't have an issue holding grudges. Oh, really? So why do you go out of your way to avoid that person? You know, it's going to show up somehow. Anger can show up, they tell us, physically, with headaches, backaches, stomach aches, cramps. Because if we allow ourselves to never be angry because it's wrong to be angry with mom or spouses or kids, we're going to find out that we're going to displace our anger somehow in other unhelpful manners. We're going to channel our anger either with being over-aggressive at work or over-aggressive with sports, over-sensitive, over I mean like anything makes her spin, or we're going to take out our anger on innocent people, a pet, the weaker people that can do nothing about it. So in verses 21 and 22, Jesus is not urging the denial of anger or the rep- repression of anger or the displacement of anger. He's not saying that anger is the same as murder or just as bad as murder. And just for the record, I'd much rather you be angry with me than try to kill me. <laughs> He's not saying that anger itself is sin. So why do I believe this? Okay, when we're going to interpret scriptures, there's three basic things we need to look like, look at to interpret scripture properly. The first thing we have to look at is what Bible verses should we interpret consistently with the practice of Jesus. We should look at the Bible verse and look how it consistently lines up with the practice of Jesus. Jesus lived what he taught. Okay, not like the Pharisees who taught one thing and then did another. Okay, what he said, he did. They were one. So when we study the Gospels, it's going to become really plain that Jesus got angry. Really? Yeah. John 2, Jesus puts together a whip of cords, and he drives out the money changers of the temple. And here's what it says in John 2, verses 16 to 17. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That does not mean that we cannot sell cupcakes outside. Now, if selling cupcakes gets so loud and so disruptive that those of us who are trying to worship can't, hmm, there's a problem there. Okay. So what happened was that here was this section that was designed and designated for women, children, and non-believers to be able to stand and be able to hear the worship coming through the curtains and the teaching coming through. And suddenly it's all full of people selling stuff and making noises, and they had no access 
to God. The marginalized were kept from encountering God. And that makes God angry. When we as a people do that, that makes him angry. He's not happy with that. When we make it difficult for the marginalized to encounter God because of our activities. Secondly, the basic rule in interpreting the Bible verses should be interpreted consistently with other Bible verses. What that means, if, if the Holy Spirit inspires a scripture here, and then you see another one, and it seems like it contradicts, there's something faulty with your interpretation, because the Holy Spirit won't contradict himself. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Literally, we can read it, be angry, but do not sin. Now, the Holy Spirit is not saying in Ephesians, be angry, and then in Matthew, never be angry. Our interpretation is off. The third rule of Bible interpretation is this. Bible verses should be interpreted consistently with their grammar, the culture, and the meaning. And that is where we're going to unlock this verse is in this part, this tool. This is where we're going to get some insight regarding what Jesus is warning us from in Matthew. In Matthew 5.22, the phrase is angry is best translated this way. But I tell you that anyone being angry with his brother and sister will be subject to judgment. The Greek verb, my favorite present, participle tense, is that one which is continual, nonstop, ongoing, over and over, state of anger, holding grudges, right? It's that long-term bitterness, resentment over and over there. So the present participle tense is being angry, suggests the anger is something that we're having a hard time letting go of and releasing it to God. Now, there's two words in the Greek, two words in the Greek that have the word anger. The first one is one that's activated easily and extinguished really quickly. And then there's this other word for anger that means long-standing, grudge-holding, bitterness kind of anger. And that is the one that's being used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Now, my pastor in Phoenix likes slogans. And it's a good reason because those slogans have stuck with me all these years. And one of his favorites was nursing, cursing, and rehearsing our hurts. And I want us to show us how to see if we're nursing a grudge. Okay, If we're nursing an anger, the first thing we would know that it would follow the idea of resentment. It would be like when we think about a person, we can't really think of them very positively. Okay, maybe we're not exploding with anger when we see the person, but when we think about them, it just doesn't really feel all that great. If we're holding a grudge, it would color our view. So when they come to mind, it's kind of negative feeling. And some of us maybe have gone to the point where we fantasize about how we would get back at them if we could. Holy Spirit. Show us if there's someone like that in our life. Well, if there is, you're nursing a hurt. And you're in some form of resentment. Nursing, cursing, rehearsing. How do we know if we've progressed to cursing? When we're seeing, this is a form of revenge. We secretly wish that life circumstances would get tough for them so they could see what it feels like and they could get what they deserve. Ever think that? 
we secretly wish life circumstances to get miserable. We might even imagine that we, we would do if we could get away with it. Revenge may look a little bit um, like this. You might gossip about them. Or mention little flaws about them, like, did you notice how late he was? Wow, her kids are totally out of control. Sure looks like she's put on some weight. Christian cloaking sounds like this. Just thought you should know. They really need prayer. Revenge has gone its way in our ranks. If we're married, we withhold sex. If we have a sibling that annoys us, we intentionally try to get them in trouble. If it's in the church, well, we'll invite everybody but them. So is there someone you regularly speak negatively about? Nursing, cursing, rehearsing. What does rehearsing our anger look like? They're like reminders, like sticky notepads. And we know we're battling with rehearsing when we regularly retell the story, the wrongs they've done to us. If we find ourselves regularly recounting the wrongs over and over and over and over in our head or we're starting to speak them over and over to people, we are rehearsing. Now, I had a church member once tell me, Clara, I know when something's really important to you because you say it twice in the conversation. Well, repeating the same hurtful incident is indication that we are rehearsing a hurt. And it is a symptom of anger. Now, am I telling you these things to make you feel bad? No. I'm going to invite you to a different kind of life. But in order to know that we need a different kind of life, we need to see the trips, the traps, what we do, so that we don't have to be a Pharisee and think, I'm just fine. I don't have a problem with anger. The pastor just said all this stuff. I'm like, wow. I do have a problem with anger, and I would like a change. Now, there was a gal back in Phoenix. See, it's safe for me to use Phoenix because that was a long time ago, and you don't know those people. But this gal was in her early 40s, and this is how she introduced herself. I won't say her last name. Hello, my name is Ruth, and I was gang raped at age 16. Wow. I think she needs to sign up for Freedom in Christ or General... Uh, generational deliverance from Ellen, right? What was sad was that she not only went through this trauma, but now she identifies herself through that trauma. Wow. I want to add one more word to my pastor's slogan, nursing, cursing, rehearsing, and that is the word bursting. And that is when we react instead of respond. We overreact to small provocations. We end up spraying on other people and bursting out to them. And they may say things like, what's the big deal? Why are you blowing up? Now, when someone says to to us that, we should pause and think, what is the big deal? Who or what am I really angry at? Now, Dr. David Ferguson, who's the founder of Intimate Life Ministries, he had this illustration to kind of highlight the occurrence of us doing this, and he would call it a $100 reaction to a $5 question. Like a husband who comes home and he says, Hey, babe, did you make dinner? Or what's for dinner? 
And this sexy little wife just goes, Wah! you know, like this lion. You're like, what? She goes, the kitchen sink is leaking and the babies are doing potty training and it's all over the place. I feel like I got dogs in the house and you did not pay the bills on time and we are being penalized and you leave your stuff all over the place. And all he wanted to say was, honey, I got a raise and I wanted to take us out to dinner if you hadn't made dinner yet. Right? Like, whoa, there's a lot in that little response. Right? She's bursting. She's reacting. She's not responding. Aerosol can of anger. One author talked about it. Read. <laughs> okay, this is what Dallas Willard thought, thoughts on this passage. And they were insightful, so I wanted to quote him. Our verbal arsenal is loaded with contemptuous terms, some sexual, racial, or cultural. They should never be uttered. Recently, cultural observers have noted the overwhelming rise in the youth of filthy language, especially among young people. Curiously, few have been able to find any grounds for condemning it other than personal tastes. How strange. Can it be that they actually find contempt acceptable or are unable to recognize it? Filthy language and name-calling is an expression of contempt. So let's examine ourselves. Am I nursing? Am I cursing? Am I rehearsing? Am I bursting with anger? And if I am, then Jesus, you say you're inviting me to rethink, repent, change my mind, and embrace the kingdom living. Now, Jesus understands the damage that anger does in our relationships and to us. And so he speaks to this emotional fundamental emotional problem that we have so that we can get involved in a different kind of life than what happens when we live that way. Matthew 5.22 But I tell you that anyone who is angry, now this is the angry that is long-term, continual kind of anger, holding grudge, resentment, bitterness, that's the, that's the anger that he's using, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be judged, subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, now Raka here has the sense of contempt. It's a sense of superiority. Kind of the sense like that other person really should not be treated like a human. It's not worthy of our care or our attention. And Jesus is saying when you do this, you are violating the sixth commandment should be subjected to judgment or to a higher court, which is the Sanhedrin. All right, you guys, we're now going to bump it up one more level. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of Gehenna. Whoa. Now, the word fool does not really carry in our present day the sense of malice that it really had in its meaning and understanding. It would be like some form of the F word. Or a string of bad words. S-O-B, F-B, D, whatever ones you want to put in there. It's a string of them. Okay? So when you do that, and you're saying, you fool, you're in danger of Gehenna. You see the progression that Jesus is showing us? Anger, grudge, resentment, verbal abuse, cursing words, contempt, superiority, murder, excluding a person from human treatment. Now, Jesus is not giving us three more things to add to do on our list. Now, certainly we should avoid them, but that's not the point. 
Jesus is dealing with our hearts. And he's trying to get to the root of our hearts. For a kingdom citizen, a follower of Christ, what should be the root of everything we do? Anybody? Love. That's right. Love. A love that looks like Jesus' love. A love that looks at other people as better than themselves. A love that can only be found in one source. And that's the invitation. Repent. Change your mind. The kingdom of God is near. And I'm here and I'm available to empower you to live this kind of life. You know, when Jesus was on the cross and he said that phrase, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, right? That was the easy thing for him to say at that point. It would have been really hard for him to say, Father, send them all to hell because they deserve it. And the more we walk in the kingdom and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the more anger is going to be changed with love. Forgiveness instead of holding grudges. Blessing instead of cursing. It becomes more of a knee-jerk reaction as we practice putting our flesh to death. Paul says in Romans 13:8, Don't run up debts. Anybody got problems with debt? Well, he's telling you don't. Don't run up debts except, okay, so there's an exception, for the huge debt of love you owe each other. When you love others, you complete what the law has been after all along. You know all the Ten Commandments and all the other laws? They were all after one thing. What is that one thing? Love. That's what God's been after all along. Through all the laws, all ten of them, and all the regulations, and everything that you can think of that God ever thought that you should do, it was all about love. Loving him, loving others, and loving yourself. That is the point. And if we make it anything other than that, we have missed the whole point entirely. The Old Testament, we've missed the whole point of the Old Testament. If we come out of there with rules and regulations of things we should do, that that's bad and that's good and you're wrong and I'm right. If we come out reading the Old Testament with that, we have missed the point, the plot of the story, the main thesis statement of the whole thing. The law cannot change me, but being in relationship with Jesus can. Being empowered by him can free me from living a life the way I want it, when I want it. So what are some things we can do? What are some practical things we can do? Now, I sometimes when I go to a restaurant, I order things, right? And I hope that what comes to the table is what I ordered. But when it doesn't come that way, I can get a little frustrated and irritated. Am I the only one that does that? Will you be frustrated or irritated by that? Okay, so I'm the only one? Okay. Well, then I'm preaching to myself. Oh, there's someone else. Okay. So a few years back, the Holy Spirit asked me to try something else because he wanted to change a narrative I had in my head. 
At the time, I thought it was an evangelistic exercise. But I've since come to realize that it was a narrative that he was working on that the world should be the way I want it when I want it. He says, Clara, when you go to the restaurant, I want you to say this to the waiter or the waitress. We pray before we eat. Is there anything that you need prayer about? Now, I know some of you will not put Christian bumper stickers on your car, right? Because you know that sometimes you don't drive very nicely, right? So when you go to a waiter and waitress and open up the conversation with, we pray before we eat, is there anything that we can pray about for you? That That's like having a bumper sticker that says Jesus loves you, right? So the Holy Spirit will remind me to say this. And most times I would remember, we pray before we eat. If there's something we can pray about for you before we eat. Very few people declined. Very few did. Most of them would share something. And some of them would even start crying while they're telling you what's going on in their life. You know, we have issues with evangelism, right? We're timid. Easy one, you guys. Very easy. But this was, what happened this one time was in one of those times when the person, Sam, the waiter, had declined. He didn't need worship. I mean, didn't need prayer. So he said, no, everything's fine. I don't need prayer. Well, we're going to pray anyway. So I remember bowing my head, and I said, Lord, this phrase came to me, and it's, Lord, you do not want to live eternity without Sam. When I said that, I felt the grief of the Holy Spirit. And I teared up with him. That was the narrative that God wanted to change in my head. Now, most recently, the Holy Spirit's been asking me to say another phrase. Another, he's trying to change the narratives in my head that are false. And Randy's shared it with you, but for the sake of what I'm teaching this morning, I want to think it's worth repeating. And this is what God has been asking me to say as if it's him saying it. This person is made in my image, and I don't want to be separated from them for eternity. So, when someone cuts me off, when I've been two hours waiting at DMV and get to the counter and I'm told you need a check, and I don't have one, when I'm put on hold for 35 minutes and counting, I get to rehearse the new narrative that God is trying to build in my heart. This person is made in my image. And I do not want to be separated from them for eternity. And you guys, it is blocking anger. It's keeping it at bay. I'm practicing putting off my right to be angry. My right to have the world the way I want it when I want it. And I'm starting to remember how God would want it if he were king of the universe. I mean, why do you think the Holy Spirit is doing this? Is this some new religious thing, new rule, new regulation I'm supposed to do? Is this something you're all supposed to do now? All going to be saying this phrase? No. But I do think he's trying to change our narratives, the way we think, the way we do things. And he's inviting us to change our mind and go a different way. Repent, Clara. Think differently about people around you, even those who annoy you and inconvenience you and hurt you. He's giving my mind another narrative 
another narrative than I want the world the way I want it, that I want to be in control, and that life isn't fair and should be fair and just. And when I repeat that phrase, something is happening inside of me. God's narrative is being written in my heart. Galatians 5, 16 to 17 says, Live by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. Now, some people will translate the word flesh as body. And flesh in this verse does not mean body. It's not a physical body that he's talking about, but rather he's talking about living in our own resources. It's talking about me in my own capacity trying to do this Jesus thing. That's the flesh. Living in your own strength is the flesh. Anybody done that? This week, today, we've lived in the flesh, not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been told by some dear, loving Christians who have problems with anger, saying, yeah, I yell at my kids and I scream, but that's the way I was raised and that's the way it's going to be. I cannot change. That is a lie. Jesus invites us to a different kind of beautiful and good life. And what we were not able to do, we are able to do with the empowering presence of God. You know, God does not command us to do anything we cannot do. He's not mean like that. I mean, yes, we cannot do it on our own. We can agree to that. But with God in us, flowing in us, we are able to do it. Jesus is inviting us to a good and beautiful life that can only be lived with just Jesus in us and coming through. You know, he said, I would never leave you, and he's not a liar. So he's with us. He's in us right now saying, I'm here, so let's live the kingdom together because I'm here. Now, if you walk away from this sermon with, I want to stop being angry, and you go try doing it by yourself, you've missed the point of today's sermon. If you leave today and you say, I want to stop being angry, and you go to God for help, work through forgiveness issues, work through anger issues, work through the attachments of the evil one in your life, then you're getting the point of today's message. In the book, The Good and Beautiful Life, Smith, the author, writes this, quote, For Jesus, the kingdom was not simply a nice idea, but a very real place life with God, which is available to all. Outside the kingdom of God, we are on our own. We must protect ourselves, fight for our rights, and punish those who offend us. Inside the kingdom of God, life is much different. God is with us, protecting us, and fighting for our well-being. Knowing this, much of our anger will diminish. So during our fast, I want you to ask God, can you show me a false narrative I have? And can you give me a phrase that might help me to break that narrative in my life, one that I can rehearse? and speak you know people used to say well you're going to be really angry and you're going to grab that kid by the ear and just whack him count to ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. right 
And by ten, the hope was by 10, you'd be a little bit more calmed down, right? That's a slogan or a phrase that that person might want to practice, right? But ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, you gave some to Clara. Can you give me one that I could practice and put to death the flesh, put to death my own capacity to try to get something done and allow you to begin to change my heart and allow your Holy Spirit to come forth in power from my life? Secondly, another very practical and biblical step is forgiveness. That's a sermon on its own, not going there. But it's huge. If you have not gone through freedom in Christ, become a member of the church, go through freedom in Christ, and get freedom major. Get ministry from Ellen Hewitt. Get deliverance. Do whatever it takes. Do your part. Push the button and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. On Thursday, I wanted to give you something because, like, this was a lot. But on Thursday, I was at a workshop, and the guy who was teaching, his name is Tom Hayes. He's over the ministry, Rafa Sozo Ministry. Really smart, nice guy. Really like what he's got to say. And he gave five steps that people need to do that they have to work through hurts to get rid of the anger. And I'm just going to mention them real quickly. One, admit the wrong. Don't excuse people. Oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. They didn't know what they were doing. No, admit that it was wrong. Two, admit that it hurt. It made me angry. I felt abandoned. I felt deceived. I was hurt. Then three, release the person to God. Let God be the judge, but release them to God. Four, release the hurt to God. Give God your hurt, your resentment, your feelings of revenge, Bitterness, hatred. Five, pray for the person who hurt you. Pray for your enemies, right? Bless those who curse you. So bless this person. Pray the Holy Spirit to lead them to repentance. Let the Holy Spirit be the judge, not you. And those are basic five steps. But I think they're well worth understanding that we can do some of these things on our own or get help to get them done. Because Jesus is inviting us to a good and beautiful life. A life free of anger. So let's pray. Wow. That took a long time. I felt like the Holy Spirit this morning was telling me that there are some um, issues. Uh, people who are having problems with in-laws, past in-laws, current in-laws, and future in-laws. And you're already being tempted to walk in anger or have walked in anger and unforgiveness the holy spirit would like to minister to you and then also he felt like he highlighted this morning that there's people who have really been hurt by bosses things that bosses have said and done and even though you may have left that work situation that anger still resides in you that injustice and hurt and it's the trap and so he's sounding the alarm Can we deal with this now before it messes up in your life and the people that you love around you? felt, too, that the Lord said there's people here dealing with hurt and anger towards siblings. You know, um, there's that phrase, don't tattle on your brother. You know what? Tattling is wrong when the intention is, I want to get her in trouble. I want to get him in trouble. It's not wrong when you're trying to spare a person from being harmed. 
But there's something that's gone messed up with that phrase, don't tattle, and you are in trouble with hurt and anger toward a sibling, a brother, or sister. And then there's some of you in here that are feeling guilty. That's what I'm teaching. You're going like, whoa, I'm there. I live in that realm. And you're feeling guilty, and the Lord wants to deliver you from guilt and shame for explosive anger episodes you've had in the past. So let's just close our eyes if you haven't already kept them closed. Thank you, Jesus, for sounding the alarm and showing us where we're trapped. And it's not to shame us. It's not, you gross sinner, stop what you're doing. You're going to go to hell if you don't. It's your invitation. Would you come to me? Would you let me clean you? Would you let me heal you? Would you let me be love in you to let me dwell in you and begin the process of allowing love to flow from you so Holy Spirit we thank you for the invitation we thank you that you are going to respond to the measure that we can surrender ourselves to you this morning you will respond so anyone that would like to surrender any part you've been hurt You know you've been hurt and you're still rehearsing, nursing, cursing, and times bursting. Would you stand? Because the Holy Spirit wants to minister to you. Put your hands out and surrender to God. That's it. That's all you have to do. To surrender to God. God, I give you myself. I give you my hurt. I give you my pain. I give you my failures. I give you my shame. And I place them on the cross. I place that person on the cross. I place my in-laws in the cross, Lord, on the cross. I place my siblings on the cross. I place that boss, that authority figure, that teacher on the cross and you make it legal to do that because when you died on the cross you said forgive them they don't know what they're doing you made it legal for me to hand them over to you the beautiful judge and for you to deal with it and not only them Lord but you make it legal for me to come to you and say Lord I give to you my brokenness and the patterns in my life that are creating a ruined life in my life. Come, Holy Spirit. Now, those of you who are sitting, look around and find someone that you can pray for. Just keep standing. Those who are standing, but those who are sitting, the Lord has given you a level of freedom, and he wants you to give it to those who are standing. Just go to them. Elizabeth, if you'd like to pray too, you're released to pray. Ellen, did you want to pray for anyone? There, this whole row stood up. They, they were just all pegged. The Holy Spirit is on this section right here with, with 
real conviction. And so they all, all of them are standing. So if you could just pray for the, everybody in this section right here. Robert and Jen, Jen, do you guys want to pray? Okay. Everybody who stood, do you have somebody who's going to pray for you? Yvonne, do you have someone praying for you yet? No? We, we need another gal to go pray for Yvonne. Introduce yourself to the person. Ask them what's going on. Um, Patrick, can you put those five steps back up, the last five steps? If that tool will be helpful to you to walk them through admitting the wrong, admitting the hurt, releasing the person to God, releasing the hurt, pray for that person who hurt you, go ahead and use that. If you've got something else that you feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, then go ahead and minister that way. Okay?